Welcome to Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture, hosted by me, Alexandria Miller. Strictly Facts teaches the history, politics, and activism of the Caribbean and connects these themes to contemporary music and popular culture. Happy Wednesday, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture. In just a few days, on August 1st, many of the former British colonies, including those in the Caribbean, will celebrate Emancipation Day, the day that the 1833 Slavery Abolition Act went into effect on August 1st, 1834, quote unquote, officially marking the end of slavery for the then British territories. After the fact, many of the colonies then moved to an apprenticeship model where their servitude was gradually abolished in two stages, first in August 1838 and then again in August 1840. As had happened across other parts of the world, the Slavery Abolition Act also came with payment to the enslavers for their, again, quote-unquote, loss of assets. While many people do oftentimes know that, what you might not know, however, is the fact that while this gradual apprenticeship model was common across the British Caribbean, it did not occur everywhere. When the Slavery Abolition Act went into effect on August 1st, 1834, Antigua became the only British Caribbean colony to transition directly to emancipation. In today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Natasha Lightfoot, Associate Professor of History at Columbia University and the author of Troubling Freedom, Antigua and the Aftermath of British Emancipation on this very history. Dr. Lightfoot, thank you so much for joining the Strictly Facts family today. Why don't we begin with you telling us a bit about where is near and dear to you in the Caribbean, um, which I kind of gave away from the episode, but and how you um, became interested in your research as a historian. So I got interested in um, doing the history of Antigua on Barbuda because my family is from there. And I've always had an interest in the history that preceded the histories my parents and grandparents knew well. The stuff of the 20th century, of labor riots, of the creation of different kind of constitutional monarchy that allowed for full adult suffrage as opposed to government by appointment and crown colony status, the change uh, that allows for eventual negotiations of independence and the, the kind of brief stop in a federated West Indian alliance in the late 50s, early 60s. Before that, all of that stuff they know, they lived through and discussed very openly, but I always wondered why the sort of previous history of slavery and emancipation, there was a certain reticence around. And in undergrad, I was a history major, just sort of accidentally, I was interested in taking lots of different kinds of classes, but stumbling onto history classes kind of made me realize that, you know, it wasn't all names and dates, but just very much telling interesting stories about lots of different social economic, political, cultural changes that affected wide swaths of different populations around the world. It was really the stories that the lecturers told in the courses I took in undergrad that made me excited to do more. And I ended up specializing in African-American history. I ended up very much kind of marrying the other interests I had, which was in literature, with the kinds of history I ended up doing as an undergrad in history major by writing a thesis on the Harlem Renaissance, on Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes. Um, and while I was doing that thesis, my undergrad advisor said to me, you're better at this than you think. Maybe you should think about grad school. So I always say my undergrad advisor, Glenda Gilmore, who's a historian at Yale, um, she was the one who sort of saw the historian in me before I saw that historian in myself. And so she encouraged me to apply to grad school and while I was in grad school, I went in thinking I was going to continue African-American history and then found that there was at NYU, the program I was in, an African diaspora specialty. And you got to learn about, you know, Black people dispersed throughout the world. And that became a sort of like rerouting for me toward that, plus some uh, family obligations that took me to Antigua while I was in grad school that ended up pushing me to think about 
certain questions that kept coming up for me while I was in my classes in grad school. So the African diaspora track at NYU obviously had a lot of focus on the history of slavery. Lots of uh, slavery oriented stuff got me thinking, well, what did freedom look like? I mean, I know dispersal happens through the networks of the slave trade, but what's freedom about? What, what happens when we get free? How do we get there? What, what was that like? So freedom became like my singular focus. And after ending up in Antigua during the year of my comps, I thought to myself, wait a minute, you know, some of the questions I have about what it means to be free are also tied to some of the questions I have about what is the longer term history of Antigua that goes kind of prior to the 20th century. And so those two things sort of came together and brought me to the subject matter of looking into Antigua's history of transitioning from slavery to freedom. And interestingly, I will give a caveat to the introduction you um, so graciously offered up to the listeners about me, um, because you mentioned Antigua being the only British colony in the Caribbean to transition from slavery to freedom without the apprenticeship. I would just say that specifically with the only sugar producing colony. All the other sugar islands with big plantation systems um, went to the apprenticeship. Antigua decided not to, but other non-sugar islands, Bermuda and the Cayman Islands specifically, they also skipped the apprenticeship. And I don't quite know why, but there's a specific reason why Antigua did. I don't know if you want to get into that, but I'll give you a chance to ask me some <laughs> questions before we go on. But that kind of long story short is how I ended up here. It's sort of a mix of the personal and professional. Definitely. Yeah, we'll get to that momentarily in our discussion. Um, I thought, I mean, I thought it was funny just listening to your introduction. I was jealous that you went through comps in Antigua and I sat, had to sit here through the snow, but nonetheless, <laughs> but um, nonetheless, I think, you know, many of us have been drawn to these histories for familial reasons. Um, and the impact that knowing our history has, it's, you know, it's exponential in a way. And that's definitely why I started Strictly Facts. Jumping directly into our episode today, as we've talked about and as we will talk about, many of the colonies at the time are seeing histories of self-emancipation, um, of rebellion incited. I'm especially thinking here of the 1831 Sunday Market Rebellion um, in Antigua. So can you offer a brief look into what is occurring before we get to this 1834 moment and what happens in 1834 as a result? Um, so... There's a whole kind of broader trajectory that starts kind of structurally in the British Empire. The move toward emancipation starts first with the end of the slave trade. The ending of the slave trade, it precedes the end of slavery because for a long time, the discourse was that slave trading was more odious than slavery itself. Um, and so the British end the slave trade in 1807, and then they end up trying to crack down on clandestine forms of slave trading by passing certain other legislation. And with every passing of, you know, some sort of new legislation or any kind of rumblings around the changes in slavery policy, there's a rumbling in the British Caribbean about this possibly being the freedom that the crown has extended that somehow the white colonial authorities on a given territory locally are holding back from the enslaved populations. So in 1816, there is this move to try and register all the slaves in the British Empire. Barbados erupts into rebellion at Easter weekend. In 1823, there's a move to try and pass amelioration laws to create a kinder, gentler version of slavery that allows for you know, days off, et cetera. Less flogging of men and no flogging of women. The push to try to make women more productive you know, in terms of their wounds, because they've been so worked to half to death that they cannot produce, you know, healthy pregnancies. So they try to create these amelioration regulations and those lead to um, Guyana uh, erupting into rebellion in 1823. Then there were parliamentary debates in 1831 about um, the end of slavery. And that is a part of what inspires the Jamaica Christmas rebellions between 1831 and 32. But very interestingly, as part of the story of amelioration in Antigua, there is a push to try and make the Sabbath a holy day. The Sabbath, meaning Sundays, 
was always the slave's day off. And enslaved people would use that day to do everything, sometimes except church, uh, much to the chagrin of Christian missionaries on the island. So, you know, the market that took place weekly that enslaved people would bring in trade wares and, you know, trade provisions grown on these small garden plots, things like that, that happened on a Sunday. The Sunday market became like this site of socializing, of partying, of drunkenness, of boxing matches, of drumming, and all of the debauchery that Christian missionaries are very much horrified at witnessing um, because amelioration was about giving enslaved people Sundays off to make them more Christian, to make them more obedient, to make them more productive slaves, right? So this is all flying in the face of the 1823 regulations. And so every other year since 1823, Antigua had to pass laws saying, these are the things that shouldn't happen on this day. And every, every other year they kept having to come back to it because enslaved people kept doing what they wanted to do with the one day that they had. And so the Methodist missionaries pushed the Antigua colonial legislature to outlaw the Sunday markets in 1831. Because I write about this in the book, much of the story of slavery in a lot of small islands is not necessarily about lots of white people instilling terror. It's about very small numbers of white people instilling terror, right? There are openings socially for enslaved people to kind of flout certain boundaries, but there are certain boundaries uh, past which they would usually not go on a daily basis. So it's not like there's rebellions every day, there's fires every day, but there are people sort of moving without the required passes beyond plantations every day. There are people who are going to end their work by a certain point if they have task work and then go and farm in their gardens instead, you know? So those kinds of everyday forms of resistance are what I track throughout my book. And you see it as much as you see it in the period after slavery, it's a foundation that was laid in the period of slavery. Um, and this is kind of the bigger point is that as much as there's like a kind of stark moment where freedom is given and there is a change that is accompanying that in terms of social status, legalities, et cetera, there's also a sameness. The changing same narrative is very much the case with much of the British Caribbean Antigua included. So in 1831, the Methodist missionaries pushed the legislature to outlaw the Sunday market. The enslaved people are very angry because that is their one bit of freedom that they look forward to during the week. And so they start pushing for its outlawing just before Easter um, because they want to keep Easter holy. And so that same week at the site of the market, um, which ironically is in the same area where my, my mother's family is from, which is an area known as Atta's estate, there is a confrontation. It's said that mostly women were the ones who were confronting the militia sent to um, sort of prevent the market activities from happening that day. After that, they're all sent back to you know, their various plantations. And then that night, something like 25 plantations are set afire. Um, and then the next couple of days, there's fires on a couple of different plantations uh, so that over the week, you know, I would say there's a significant number because in Antigua, there's probably at the time maybe 150 or so operative estates. So, you know, to have like, you know, 20, 30 plantations on fire is not a small amount. It's not insignificant. Um, to have fire set anywhere is obviously an alarming thing for powerful, but still small numbers of white authority present on the island who are just going to, um, you know, try, try to figure out how to save the bottom line, but also figure out how to get, you know, everybody in the enslaved community back in line um, and obedient. And so the back and forth that ensues, there's not only a court case, but I think there's also a discourse around rights that enslaved people start to engage. One of the sayings that comes from the Methodist missionaries surveying of enslaved people during the 1831 conflagration is this phrase, so then make law for Negro, so then make law for master. And it's the idea that enslaved people had that you too are subject to a certain kind of legal um, you know, boundary. 
right? And that there's certain rights that enslaved people have that whites should be subject to upholding by the law set for the colony. And so ultimately, this is a kind of like, I think an interesting moment because you get to see a lot of different things happening. One, this idea that enslaved people see themselves in some ways, you know, as rights bearing, as having somebody in the empire structures having accountability to them. You also see though, um, you know, what some historians have noted as the kind of changeover in the kind of post 1800 period where, you know, slave uprising that is taking place is in the British Caribbean sort of aimed at kind of extracting rights within a system of plantation productivity as opposed to trying to overthrow the plantation system. So it's a complicated, you know, instance of resistance that doesn't quite set to undo the structures fully of their enslavement. But I think it's those kinds of complications are what makes it historically interesting. Um, and so these sets of uprisings, I would say Antigua's in that sort of trajectory of, you know, Barbados, Guyana, Jamaica. I'm pretty sure if you scratch beneath the surface, there are all kinds of conflicts happening around the region of this sort, especially as you get into the late 1820s, early 1830s, that suggests that the British uh, government is aware that enslaved people cannot be contained for much longer in this status. Um, and so there are some people like Gillian Matthews, who's written, you know, a really good book, sort of gesturing toward those kinds of questions. And I feel like my chapter on the 1831 Sunday up market uprising is also kind of gesturing toward that as well. This idea that very much from below, there is also a groundswell. It's not just about kind of parliamentary debates. It's also assessing the fact that, you know, enslaved people are getting increasingly impatient and rebellious. And so there needs to be that kind of structural change if in fact um, the empire wants to create an orderly transition to freedom. They had better do it soon and do it with this in mind. Thank you so much for that historical framing for our conversation. As we had alluded to previously, so then how does um, Antigua go, you know, different from a lot of the other sugar producing islands? How does Antigua go to immediate emancipation? So um, interestingly, every kind of like general history of the British Caribbean that I've seen um, tried to kind of portray Antigua's planter class as being somehow inexplicably more um, magnanimous why they decided to make this, you know, sort of radical move away from apprenticeship. Um, and then I did the research and then I realized this is absolutely not the case. Part of the Slavery Abolition Act um, and the parliamentary debates that preceded it was about the fact that this emancipation, if it were to happen, was actually a massive property transfer. As my colleague in my home department um, at Columbia, Christopher Brown, who's written a really great book on um, abolition in the British Empire as well, called Moral Capital, he talks about, I've seen him talk about this, where he says, you know, the abolition of slavery was one of the biggest acts of big government that one could ever see, you know, in their lifetimes at that point, you know, it's sort of like eminent domain on steroids, where all of these assets privately owned become essentially, you know, claimed by the government and the government in return has to compensate the owners for that loss. As you noted, um, when you talked about uh, the compensation program earlier on. And the thing is, is that the Antigua planters knew that this money was coming and their proposal to the, um, the colonial secretary of state was that if we free our enslaved population early, we should get our compensation money early. They wanted to essentially skip the line because the way that compensation was to work and the way that it did work is that essentially based on the average price of an enslaved man, woman, and child, the average price of those three kind of categories, I believe it was 
as of the year 1832, that was supposed to be the basis for which one could file a claim for the value of what your total enslaved holdings were supposed to merit you. And so basically that whole process was to be started in 1836. Now, Antigua's planters, like many planters actually in the British Caribbean, were already facing insolvency because in many ways, I know that this is part of a, an older debate going back to like, say, Eric Williams versus, you know, kind of basically every other white historian of the British Empire at the time, right? Was the British Empire um, in the Caribbean in some sort of financial decline? Why, you know, they decided to end slavery at the time? There's definitely pockets of places that are declining. Even if people want to say Williams was, you know, not right in every case. If you look at Antigua's history, the money that they were making in the 18th century is not the money they were making in the 19th century. By and large, planters were much poorer, much more, um, you know, sort of lean in the pockets. And so they saw the possibility of compensation as an infusion of much needed cash into their industry. And so they wanted this money early and that's what they proposed to, you know, basically to the colonial office. And the colonial office said, you can free, you know, your enslaved populations wherever you want, however you want, but we're still giving the money when we're ready to do the entire region's compensation package. So you will get compensated back when everybody else will. And so when they said that, then the planters started to meet and say, maybe we need to go to the apprenticeship. And then the problem was is that they had already publicized that they weren't going to go to the apprenticeship. And then some planters said, if we tell them that we are going to the apprenticeship now, this is going to be a disaster. And so we have to basically keep our word. So again, the point being, this is not about any sort of humanitarian impulse on the part of the planter class. It's still about the bottom line, which is what pretty much is the theme that kind of overlays the entire history of British emancipation, that there is much more of a kind of, you know, capitalistic um, impulse that is pushing the structure and process of emancipation. Um, whether there's an apprenticeship system or in Antigua's case or not, right? There's still a worry about the money. That's always the worry. I mean, and we see that today, right? The value of the capital, although I don't term people as capital, right? But the value of capital always has historically outweighed the value of humanity. And that's the thing I tell my students all the time is, you know, when I teach about this is that we have to be aware that the same way that um, African descended people entered slavery with a price on their head. They left slavery with a price on their head too. And we have to sit with that, that there's something radically wrong with any empire that paints themselves as, you know, giving something when, you know, to enslaved people, to black people, when in fact, this is what the ultimate impulse always was, is to always have you know, a monetary value attached to Black life. Moving to other parts of your book, I think what you term as freed people, which I think obviously to our conversation of how mm -hmm. you're framing things, right, especially humanity. So I think that phrasing is very powerful. Um, but how then do you see freed people's lives being characterized after emancipation? What are some of the struggles that they face? I obviously read it for comps, right? So um, there's also a gendered element, right, of um, some of the, these post-emancipation struggles that you see for freed people. So could you talk a bit about that, please? Um, sure. So the rest of the book, after we sort of track the actual moment of legal emancipation coming into effect, is looking at the different ways that freed people tried to actually make freedom feel real in their everyday lives because the big issues that would have been the focus of any population emergent from a state of enslavement would be, you know, where am I going to live? Where am I going to work? Can I get my kids educated? And how do I, you know, sort of build 
a life and a social world outside of, you know, my labor, right? So that's kind of what the rest of the book is dedicated to, to looking at is telling a social history of how, you know, Antigua's freed people sought to actually feel free on an everyday basis. I spent some time looking specifically at how they tried to rework labor to their advantage, when and where they could try to negotiate for better wages, better working conditions. And in many cases, their housing was often tied to their labor on a particular estate. So because many people still occupied the slave barracks they occupied while in bondage. And so trying to figure out how do we get off of these estates? How do we find ourselves outside of the kind of nexus of you know, planter surveillance and power that is represented by essentially living in the company town when the company town was the site of your um, hereditary enslavement and your ancestors, that of your ancestors. So the move to get to possessing land and creating free villages. Um, so all of that I track. But I also ask questions about what happens beyond that because ultimately these kinds of bigger structural changes are very slow moving and are often obstructed. So not everybody gets to a free village. Um, certainly not everybody gets high wages. Most people don't. If you don't have a certain amount of value in property or cash that you can prove you can claim, then you can't get to vote. So voting in the vestry elections in the parishes, because there's no separation between church and state in that way, the establishment church of the, you know, the Anglican faith is still the church of the British state. So when you pay taxes, you pay parish taxes to the functioning of the parish church and its various outreach services. So electing a vestry means electing people who are going to have some influence in the way life functions in your particular parish. Most people don't get to vote in those. I talk about how the few people who manage to accumulate some wealth start getting asked to pay parish tax. And then when they say, well, can we vote in vestry elections? They start raising the qualifications for how much you need to be worth in order to participate in a vestry election. And forget it, the assembly, the sort of national kind of colonial assembly, there's no black electors really, practically none for those elections. So once you take away all of that, right? And then there's the issue of schooling, which is something that is also difficult to kind of keep going. Missionaries are the ones who will do it because the British government, you know, only sets aside uh, but so much money for that. And the planters by and large don't want to allocate that money because they don't want people getting ahead of themselves, sending their kids to school and thinking, well, hopefully this schooling will mean that they will eventually move out of plantation work and into something of, you know, a quote unquote, more middle-class, you know, line of work. And so the planters do everything to push against educating, you know, the children and even the adults who are emerging from slavery. Um, so freed people have to figure out, well, how do we do what we want to do without the stuff that sort of makes us equal participants in society, <laughs> you know, because we're not going to get an education. We're not going to get the vote. We're not going to get land in any sort of significant way, but we still need to do things, right? So they try all of the things that I mentioned, but they also try all of these smaller everyday acts of dressing different and socializing differently and, you know, worshiping, you know, both by joining the Christian church and by continuing to practice obia um, and other sort of animistic uh, faith, uh, another sort of like kind of West African based, you know, kind of polytheistic way of worship. So all of those things that kind of make them marked as from the British perspective, you know, not having enough decorum, not having the sort of like comportment that is worthy of the sort of free, um, you know, state that they were imagining they were creating. The Victorian um, ideals. The Victorian ideals, the sort of, you know, one man, one woman, a few children in a home kind of thing. That wasn't happening. I've even just sort of transitioned now into talking about gender just by even mentioning that. But before I go more in depth into that, I just want to say 
essentially what I'm tracing for much of the book is the way that Antigua's free population, free people trying to make these structural changes actually have some effect on their lives, but also figuring out the strategies, how to still take care of themselves and their communities and find, you know, sort of comfortable space to live in, even in the most like deprived of circumstances, because all of their attempts are consistently obstructed. So everything I'm tracing is a kind of uh, push and pull, you know, a little bit of force applied sometimes by different communities of free people trying to make something happen will always be met with extreme sort of blockage obstruction by the state. And so they'll try another thing, even though all of their strategies ultimately do not make them wealthier, more comfortable, more, you know, sort of more like equals with their former enslavers. Those failures are still instructive. And I think, you know, being able to to actually talk about enslaved and freed people as having particular kinds of politics, at least small p politics, right, is important to be able to say that, yeah, they didn't get all of these things, but they still tried. And the things that they did get are also signs because almost every little thing that they managed to accomplish creates white anxiety. And you see it in the archives. The archives tell you this all the time. Like, you know, the colonial administrators, planters, white observers, you know, travelers to the region, they're all sort of saying, oh, who do these people think they are? <laughs> How come they're outside? They, they labor in rags from Monday to, to Saturday. And then on Sunday, they're showing up in town in Victorian silks and parasols. How dare they? You know, and it's like, well, why not? Why not them? You know, so the gendered aspects are really interesting because so much of the story of Slavery is a gendered construct, as I mentioned, regarding, you know, sort of trying to make women's wombs more productive. The whole entire enterprise, as you look at the work of people like Jennifer Morgan or Sasha Turner or Catherine Powell, et cetera, people are obviously betting on the futurity of Black women's wombs when they're creating this violent enterprise, even though they know that the work that is happening makes enslaved women physically unable to reproduce with ease, right? It's not that they don't reproduce, it's just that there's a lot of places that chart negative birth rates during pretty much the entire period of slavery, um, with very little exception. There's still negative birth rates after the end of slavery, too. Like, this is what I mean when we talk about changing sane. You see it in so many different aspects. So men and women are trying to obviously come together, form family, um, build intimacies in all kinds of ways, the same way they did in the period of slavery, but we now have the interference of, you know, both planters and churches in different ways, wanting to see a certain type of nuclear family come into being. Planters want there to be a set of um, more material needs that push people to want to report for work, right? Because if you've created needs, you've created desires, you've created a material set of goods that without which you cannot live, then you will want to make wages. So you'll want to show up to the plantation every day before sunrise. The churches are invested in creating more obedient, uh, faithful servants of the Lord. And part of their mission is to try to make people form families that are through the format of Christian monogamous marriage. That's not what was happening in slavery. That's not what was happening in freedom either. But it sort of leads to this very um, complicated set of interactions where at different points, the Christian churches are sort of surveilling freed people. You know, that's the thing. I, one of the other things I chart in the archives that I'm looking at for Antigua is this, you know, ongoing um, meddling that the church does in the affairs of freed families who go to the church because they want certain social services they can't get from planter-run governments who are running on a much more of an, a kind of austerity framework, right? So the planters don't want to use government resources to pay for education and for social services like, you know, burial and healthcare and this, that, and the other. So the churches do that. The churches step in and you have to sort of see the church as a kind of demi-state. 
in that way. And yeah, they provide social welfare, but the cost, the price of entry into their social welfare is conformity with their rules. So, you know, to get onto the, the free village lands that the churches control, um, you need to pay dues and you need to show up to church every Sunday. And, you know, to be able to send your kid to the mission schools, those kids need to be in church <laughs> on Sunday in order to get to school Monday to Friday. And some of the rules involve people having to then prove to the church that they are indeed not like, you know, the Methodists are looking to make sure that nobody's throwing a party. You know, you can't wear jewelry. You can't go to horse races. Like I, I found a, a set of rules to, for the membership in the Wesleyan Methodist Missionary Society's, you know, kind of uh, church, different parishes where they say, you know, straight up, if you're having fun, you're not a Methodist. Same thing with the Moravians, which is the other kind of big proselytizing sect on the island. The Anglicans are obviously present on the island and they're trying to also get souls and save souls as well. It's still the church of the planter establishment, but it's realizing its survival also depends on there being black participation. All three churches are very much pushing a certain type of Christianizing. It's very gender, it's very much about the man working, the woman maybe sometimes not working, although planters also want those women working, and their financial circumstance, the material circumstances of free families dictate that everybody still has to work. But there's this idea that women should work less, if at all, and they should work for less, if at all, to create this sort of like nuclear male-headed household situation. And the children should go to school, or, or they should work too, because they also need to work. <laughs> because the families can't afford for them not to work, but also the planters don't want the children to not work and grow up and think they shouldn't work for the estate. So there's all this like contradictory messaging. And yet what ends up happening is that women are disadvantaged by all of this. All the contradictions meet women right at the middle of the intersections of you shouldn't work, but you should. You know, women and men can equally work as hard and you're just as masculine as the men, but you should also submit in a household to a man um, and so, you know, while also making less, while also making less, <laughs> right. And uh, you can't have kids out of wedlock and you can't, you know, have like these multi-generational families where, you know, multiple sets of women are supporting each other. You should actually just be submitting to a, a man who should take care of you, but he might have multiple children with multiple women in multiple households. And so the chapter that I write, and it's so funny because I used to really balk in grad school at the, the books that had a chapter on women. And I was very much interested in making sure that I did not write that book. And so I apply a gendered analysis throughout. And I think I achieved that well, you know, but I absolutely didn't want to set aside a chapter that I really just spent time. Here's where I'm going to talk about the women. And yet the stuff that I was finding in the church archives about religion and about gender and about this household formation stuff and how it interacted both with labor and the law and the sort of like social remaking of freed people after slavery into some sort of like diminutive Victorian set of subjects, because they certainly weren't citizens, they were subjects, right? So how do you, you know, bringing to mind like Catherine Holt's civilizing subjects, right? Like it's this push to create very somewhat British, but British people who are lesser and know their place. And how do we keep them in their place with all these rules and structures? And what do these rules and structures do? They produce a particular gendered set of definitions about how freedom is supposed to proceed. And what do those do? Those disadvantaged women entirely. So the other thing that happens when I look in the church archives, this is a whole bunch of evidence of free women being abused by free men in the midst of all of these closing regulations, regulations that are like basically reducing the amount of opportunities that people can have. It sort of leads to a frustration that I tried not to write about pathologically. I wanted to talk about it, but I wanted to be clear that this is as much about the frustrations of, you know, what freedom doesn't bring as it is about a longer term devaluation of Black women's um, bodies and contributions to households that also started in slavery too, right? So it's not just like Black men have the propensity to be violent toward Black women. Like, 
the violence that is happening is as much structural. And so I wanted to sort of communicate that by saying, make sure that we keep in mind the church is recording, churches are recording the instances of this and they are actually recording and doing nothing about it. They're more interested in these people have broken the rules, let's throw them out of the church. <laughs> so, you know, it speaks to a culture of violence that is happening. Violence is one of the key tools, I argue, is how people express themselves as freedom-bearing subjects. And it's a very kind of difficult thing. It was difficult for me to even come to terms with, but it certainly became part of my argument that violence is a language of freedom that everybody spoke and understood because violence was also the language of slavery. Again, to get back to the changing same. To the point of gender, one thing that I thought through and just in, you know, the women's historian in me, right, from the education standpoint of the U.S., right, when there are oftentimes conversations about women's experiences during slavery, particularly from like a memoir perspective, um, Harriet Jacobs oftentimes becomes the book that is read, particularly in my classes. But, you know, nonetheless, I think from a Caribbean perspective, on the other hand, right, though we have Mary Prince, who, though not born in Antigua, um, she is, you know, forcibly relocated to Antigua and spends a lot of her later years in Antigua. Um, you also have the Hart sisters. So Elizabeth and Anne Hart, who are critical writers and abolitionists at the time. Beyond um, what you were speaking about a moment ago, how do women's stories continue to shape this abolitionist moment or post-emancipation moment? Um, well, Mary Prince is, I think, important because her narrative is as far as I know, the first published narrative of an enslaved woman to um, appear in print in the Atlantic world. And the documentation of her consistent abuse, the exposure to what's often euphemized throughout her text as indecency, is all kind of sexual assault, it's rape, it's the kinds of stuff that we know to be endemic to women's experiences in slavery. So she gets that out to these abolitionist handlers in the UK who have heavily edited her story, right? And even with this heavily edited story, we get so much. You see so much um, that is going on in terms of how women's experiences in slavery were particularly gendered in these violent ways. And what I think is very interesting, I always, you know, kind of draw students' attention to the end of that narrative and how she's speaking directly to an English reading public in England, where she says, you know, essentially, I know exactly what it is to be enslaved by people who are claiming to be English down here in the West Indies. And I need you all to know that what's going on down here is not your common sense of decent Englishness. Something else is happening here. And she's playing into or the abolitionists that are sort of writing the story down for her are certainly pushing her to, to kind of express that part as the sort of parting words, right? That you need to understand that what is happening is absolutely should tarnish your sense of yourselves because it is violent, it is awful, and it's basically damning an entire subsection of humanity to some of the worst vices that that human civilization has ever come up with. Um, and so her speaking in that way is quite an indictment. You know, again, the appearance of it in the same year that the parliamentary debates about abolition take place. And it goes into, I believe it's either two or three printings in that one year, 1831. It's to tell you the British public is absolutely getting aware whether they want to be or not, of the fact that, yes, um, something different has been happening in the West Indies than what we thought, and maybe this system should not continue. To talk about sort of the different ways that, you know, kind of movement from below on the part of enslaved peoples pushing the empire toward abolition, Mary Prince would be a really um, standout example of that. So the Heart Sisters, I think, are more complicated. I've written about them myself in a volume that emerged in, I want to say the, ooh, 
it came out in 2015, but my thoughts about them have been emerging over time well before that. Um, but the Heart Sisters are two women who are mixed race, born into freedom in Antigua, and are both married to white men who have places of importance in the Methodist community in Antigua. And one is married into the Gilbert family, who is uh, basically the founding family of Methodism. They bring Methodism into the Caribbean by having meetings in Antigua. They were the patriarchs of the Gilbert family were contemporaries of John Wesley. Anne Hart marries a poor relation of the Gilbert family, John Gilbert, and he's a clerk for, I believe, the Navy, the Navy stationed at a harbor called English Harbor in Antigua, where like kind of all the naval operations for um, the militia happened on the island. So Anne Hart is married to him. Her sister Elizabeth is married to Charles Thwaites, who is a Methodist catechist. He teaches on the island, he teaches school children and adults how to read um, the Bible and who, how Methodist mass should um, proceed, et cetera. So both of these women write histories of Methodism in Antigua and they write to um, one of the Methodist missionaries in England who wants to kind of get a sense of what's going on with Methodism in Antigua. And their letters I actually analyzed for this article that's part of this edited volume on the intellectual history of Black women like the article is really saying that they're not abolitionists. I would say they're ameliorationists because their work is very much interested in trying to push an awareness of enslavement as gendered, as very much, again, making the lives of Black women who are enslaved indecent. And they want to see those women brought to a more chaste place. And they do so by doing outreach. So they created, you know, a colored refuge society. They built schools. They're behind one of the oldest schools in the British Caribbean. It's a primary school at Bethesda. And Bethesda is a Methodist run village in the countryside in Antigua. So all of the work that they did was about certainly outreach, but what they weren't saying is that slavery needed to end. I think they see slavery as a necessary evil. And it's because they grew up in a household where they owned slaves. There's actually records showing that their free mixed race father, who was a yeoman farmer, he owned slaves. And so that's something we have to be clear about too. I don't spend as much time in my book talking about the mixed race middle class as I do in the article I write on the Heart Sisters, but the mixed race middle class does come up and it's clear that we can see those groups. Um, and they look different in different islands, but they're often seen as that kind of like buffer class because they share ancestry with enslaved people or formerly enslaved people when we get to the period after 1834, but they are absolutely setting themselves apart. So the work of people like a Melanie Newton, who, you know, writes on Barbados about this same group of people. When you read studies that, that mention them in depth, you see where their work is absolutely trying to sort of like broker with the colonial, you know, administrators for Black working class populations, the mixed race people sort of become the spokespeople, but they're not always pushing for the same treatment, right? They want to still make sure that their space in the middle is preserved where they can actually sort of push themselves forward through that same advocacy to kind of retain a certain social cachet and, um, you know, kind of economic ways, really. Um, so I think the Hart sisters are very much, um, Anne and Elizabeth Hart, they are advocates for enslaved women, but I don't know if they're advocates necessarily for abolition. What's interesting is that they both die in 1833. So they never lived to see emancipation come to pass in Antigua. You know, I've always wondered what would happen um, if they would pivot or not um, once freedom comes to pass for everybody. What do they do then, you know? But I think they would have continued to do the kind of advocacy work, the educational work that they did. I don't know if they would have been advocates for equality, <laughs> you know, just to be clear. Yeah, the, the historical just like turns and pivots are unending in a sense, right? Yeah. This question is going to be a big gap of time, right? So I know you can't do everything in this answer, but I think you know, post that 1834 period, what do you 
see as being some of the greatest shortcomings of emancipation, particularly how it evolved in Antigua? And how do you see some of these consequences result, you know, moving forward, even into the present day? Right. So one of the big issues, of course, is the stuff around labor um, and the fact that the structure of labor in the plantation setting and beyond it Everything was still driven by sugar. It's still a monocrop economy for much of the region or, you know, kind of cash crops so that, you know, islands can't feed themselves. That sort of singularity of the economy is one factor. The fact as well that people had trouble negotiating the circumstances of their labor, which means that you don't really see a breakthrough in terms of uh, working people's rights for another century. So that the period from 1934 to 39 involves strikes happening, uh, wildcat strikes happening in just about every British Caribbean territory. And what's interesting is the things that they are striking for in the, the 1930s, some version of these kinds of issues come up in the 19th century um, so I end my book with an uprising that happens in 1858, where Antiguans are fighting migrants from Barbuda, their smaller sister island, who are living in the town of St. John's, which is Antigua's capital. And they're fighting because the people in St. John's who are Antiguan in this one area near the harbor called Point, it's still called Point, those the folks in Point start wanting to um, basically assault the Barbudans who are living in Point because they think the Barbudans are taking all the dock work away from them jobs and wages are still at the heart of everything, right? And I write a lot about the complications of that uprising for showing, you know, sort of the limits of a freedom that continues with a colonialism that is still kind of structuring the way that freedom wouldn't proceed. <laughs> and, and, you know, that that is going to, you know, make real progress next to impossible. So colonialism is what it is, and it's pretty much also a changing same right up through the 20th century. So it takes, same way in the United States, it takes about 100 years before you start seeing from the end of slavery to when you start seeing the movement toward actual forms of equality in terms of both material wages as well as, you know, political participation. The same is true in the British West Indies. It takes at least 100 years because Emancipation is between 1834 and 1838. The strikes happen in between 1934 and 39, and full adult suffrage doesn't happen until the middle 40s. So same story, right, of voting and wages, et cetera, um, and opportunity as being something that takes a century after slavery to make happen. That's one consequence that's still a problem. Back to the economics, we're now at a place where most of the region no longer produces sugar, but produces sun, sea, and sand for first world consumption in the form of a tourism industry that is both economically devastating and actually environmentally um, devastating as well. And so we're looking at a place where, once again, similar to how sugar and other cash crops couldn't keep an entire island fed and comfortable economically, tourism can't feed an island either. It's got so many seasonal dips and inconsistencies that, you know, not everybody's going to be employed at any given time in the year. Um, hotels have to close uh, because they can't keep people at full capacity, especially when it's warm there and warm in the first world. Then there's also moments of climate disaster that shuts down airports and destroys structures on the island. So, you know, you get that as a sort of, you know, immediate stop to any sort of tourism activity. Then you also have the sort of broader devastation of, you know, everything from like sunscreen to cruise ships destroys coral reefs, which means your first line of defense against the waves that are built by the hurricanes. <laughs> Those are gone, you know what I mean? So, you know, you turn your rainforest into golf courses, you got no more for ground cover to prevent, again, to break up hurricane winds. You've got a lot of different things that, for tourism's sake, you've really seen where both the economic precarity and the sort of environmental destruction that is produced 
is not doing well for the region either. So the future of the sort of like post slavery moment being now looks too much like <laughs> then in that way <laughs> that makes me worry about what's next. So we have COVID at the moment still ravaging communities around the world. That also meant a dip in visits to these islands, right? You had a year of complete downturn in terms of travel numbers, and now those numbers are on the rise. But the health systems that are there can't support widespread sickness. And yet, if you don't let in guests from the first world with their money um, to come and spend locally, then you don't really have a tourist economy that can feed the few people it does feed. I mean, I could go on and on, but the point being, there are a lot of limits um, to what ended up being the legacy of emancipation. The point being that, you know, to use um, Ronaldo Walcott's phrase, we are in a long emancipation, we're still in it. That freedom that we're looking for is in progress. It's not fully arrived. I don't want to say that it's not happened in some ways, like obviously there's more freedom now than there was in 1934, in 1834, but there's still a long way to go. And it's equally important not to divorce some of these these things you're talking about in terms of like who's even owning the hotels and things of that nature from this longer history of um, slavery and colonialism. This would be a two-hour conversation yes, yes, if we would. went there, so we won't go there. But, um, but yes, the patterns are very similar. Right. Similar so much as to be troubling, to, to use right. my own phrase, you know? And so our final question, everybody knows my favorite question. What are some of your favorite examples of how this um, history has been memorialized and attributed in um, contemporary recent popular culture? Give us your favorite book, etc. Well, there's so many. So I taught a class for the first time that I've been thinking about for years on how the Caribbean's literary contributions to the world of letters is incredibly entangled with um, historical engagements and the archive. Um, and so this course was all about how history and is something that fiction authors are absolutely contending with and in some ways doing as much if not more than the historians to try to um, you know kind of push these conversations front and center. And so I put a lot of my favorite books on there selfishly uh, <laughs> to, to just be clear, right? Um, so I taught The Zong by Marlene Nobese Phillip, Book of Night Women by Marlon James, Dance on the Volcano by Mary V. Chauvet, uh, Nothing's Matt by Erna Broadbur. I'm going through my whole syllabus, they're all my favorites. <laughs> Um, Jamaica Kincaid has to be mentioned that everything that she writes means the absolute world to me personally, obviously, right? Um, but, um, a small place because of everything we just talked about. So let's see who else. Oh, uh, Tiffany Yannick, my friend Tiffany, she, uh, wrote a really fantastic book called Land of Love and Drowning about the USVI, um, that deals with all these contending colonialisms and colonial transfer. That's really interesting, important. Dion Brands, but in another place, not here. Stunning. It's just a stunning book. It just breaks my heart every time. What else? Ah, um, Myra Santos Febra's Our Lady of the Night. Oh, so good. Um, <laughs> uh, I could be here all day. I mean, I just, I love like Caribbean literature because it just does so much with our history. The last book I taught was Clap When You Land by um, Elizabeth Acevedo. Caribbean people always clap when they land on a plane. I still clap. I don't care. Clap. I'm still yeah, clapping. You <laughs> but you know, the stuff of like living in diaspora and between two worlds that's so, it spoke to me on so many levels that it was very much my life and the life of many people I knew growing up in New York. Everybody was a migrant from somewhere, you know, in my neighborhood in the Bronx, you were either from a Southern state, an English speaking island or a Spanish speaking island. <laughs> you were going somewhere for the summer, you know, one of those three places, right? So 
everything about Caribbean literature is absolutely um, front and center for me. I'll stop there because we've been going for more than, than an hour at this point. So um, no worries. I I appreciate. I mean, you were naming a lot of my favorites too. So I was like, yep, that one. That one. I feel like that's yeah. My whole syllabus. I've just you know I'm putting I put it out there because I just wanted to read these books and maybe one day who knows I might become a novelist myself. We look forward to it. Oyago, stay tuned for Strictly Fact Sounds, where we connect our history to pop culture. For this Strictly Fact Sounds, how could we do an episode on Antigua and not highlight award-winning Antiguan-born author Jamaica Kincaid and the literary gifts she's bestowed upon the world? Barring from Dr. Lightfoot's amazing list, I'm emphasizing Kincaid's A Small Place. First published in 1988, it's a book I have recommended to so many, and although Kincaid primarily discusses contemporary issues, she explains them as the very legacies of British colonialism that we discussed in this episode. So I bid to you all, happy reading. Well, nonetheless, Dr. Lightfoot, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us today. We hope our Strictly Facts family enjoyed listening, and we hope um, you enjoy the rest of your day, as well as have a very happy Emancipation Day. Licklemore, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Strictly Facts. Visit strictlyfactspodcast.com for more information from each episode. Follow us at Strictly Facts Pod on Instagram and Facebook and at Strictly Facts PD on Twitter.